thank you very much and happy Easter. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Not in the mood, eh? Happy Easter. Uh, great to see you. I think my mouth is just about clear of cream egg fondant. Just kind of sticks, doesn't it? Anyway. Um, yeah, great to be with you. Just such a joy. Had uh, loads of people here at the 9.30 meeting. Got all of you here at this meeting. Wonderful to be together. It's always wonderful to be together, but there's something so uh, special about Easter Sunday. And uh, just to echo the, the welcome that was given to visitors, um, and particularly if for you, um, this, this maybe is a bit of an odd environment for you. This isn't where you'd normally be. You don't necessarily feel like comfortable here. Uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming. We always count it as such a privilege that you would come and spend this time with us. And I pray it would be a good time, it would be a good experience um, and who knows, maybe even a life-changing experience for you. So I wonder what Easter means to you. What does Easter mean to you? Clearly, for those of us who are Christians, those of us who have an active faith in Jesus Christ, um, when we talk about Easter, the events that we celebrate, they're, they're truly life-changing. I mean, this is why you know, we're celebrating as we do. This is why everyone's so excited and animated about it. They're truly life-changing right at the core of who we are. But if that's not you... And for you, Easter is, I don't know, I mean, clearly it's got an importance to you because you're here, but maybe you wouldn't say it's life-changing. You know, it's a tradition. It's something which comes around every year. You like to mark it, you like to celebrate it because you always have, um, but it's more of a tradition. It's not life-changing for you. If that's you, uh, today I want to ask you, I think probably the, the most important question um, that you've ever been asked. Um, I'm not going to ask you to marry me or anything like that. There are lots of questions I could ask you, but actually I want to ask you what I think is more important than any other question you will ever face, and it's this. Did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? <laughs> Thank you. Did Jesus rise from the dead? There are only two possible answers to that question, and your response to that question will shape the rest of your life, and indeed eternity. So you know the story. Um, Jesus was crucified. Um, put on a cross along with criminals. And by the way, um, there's no debate about that. So historians and scholars of all religions or of no religion all agree about a couple of things about Jesus. One is that he existed, that, that he really was this man called Jesus, and he, he was known as a preacher and a healer, that he was somebody who was known to go around doing and saying some pretty extraordinary things. And then the second thing is that he was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. It's just a historical fact. Okay, so... That's, that's our starting point. But, of course, the story goes on beyond that. That three days later, uh, this group of women went to the tomb where Jesus' body was buried, only to find that the m massive stone guarding the entrance had been rolled out of the way. Jesus isn't there. There's no body. There's just grave clothes. The grave clothes that his body was wrapped in are there, but no body. And then an angel, or what they claim is an angel, sitting there saying, he's not here. Jesus has risen from the dead just as he said he would. Now that is an amazing story. And of course it's one that many people find quite difficult to believe. Understandably. But listen to what the Apostle Paul said about the resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote, wrote a lot of the letters that we have in the New Testament. And this is from a letter called 1 Corinthians. So it's a letter that he wrote about 20 years after the resurrection. It's supposed to have happened to a church in a place called Corinth, which is why it's called Corinthians. Okay, So this is from chapter 15. This is what Paul said about the resurrection. Verse 17, he said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith, speaking to Christians, your faith is futile. 
you're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Essentially, Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead, then all Christians are just fools. You know, that might be your opinion already. I don't know. But we're just, he's saying your faith is futile. It's a complete waste of time. You know, all Christians are to be, should be pitied more than all men. If there's no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians worship a corpse whose death achieved precisely nothing. So what Paul is saying here is everything, the whole of this, the whole of the Christian faith, everything rests and hinges on the resurrection. So that's a good question, isn't it? Did it happen? Did it happen? Of course, to many people, the idea of resurrection just seems completely ludicrous. It's just not, people, people don't rise from the dead. You know, it's just, it's out of our frame of reference to our, our Western 21st century ears. Um, the resurrection of Jesus has been consigned in many quarters to the realm of myth, fairy tale, legend, whatever we want to call it. Problem is, you just can't get away with saying that. Not with any integrity anyway. You can't get away with saying it's fairy tale, myth, legend, because if you look at it historically, you get a very, very different picture. So that's what I want to do for part of today. I wanted to briefly outline that historical picture that we have. One, because for those of us who are Christians, actually I think this helps us. It gives us a renewed confidence in what we believe. But also for anyone here who holds a different view about the resurrection, or maybe you just don't know, you're just not sure, you never thought about it, it's never, it's never occurred, you know, you never thought about the resurrection of Jesus, maybe this just gives us some food for thought. So, earlier in that chapter 15, which I just read from, Paul uh, makes a pretty compelling historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. And there are three main aspects to that case. So the first aspect, the first element, is the empty tomb. So in verse 3 and 4, uh, Paul says, uh, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. So Paul is very, very clearly saying, Jesus definitely died, he was definitely buried in that tomb, and he was definitely raised from the dead. In other words, the tomb really was empty on that morning because Jesus' body wasn't there. He had been raised from the dead. Now, Paul isn't alone in claiming this. As extraordinary claims it is, he's not alone in claiming it. We have at least 17 first-century documents written by at least seven different people that we have here in the Bible because the Bible's not, uh, it's not just one book. It is a collection of books and writings put together into one volume. So we've got 17 documents that we have in various museums, at least part of those documents, original documents from the first century written by seven different people that all claim the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, that the tomb was empty. And then you could say, well, yeah, but you know, if they're all in the Bible, well, they're all clearly just, they're just supporting the same story. They're just, they're just trying to back up the same story. What we've got to bear in mind here is that these are not people who were expecting anybody to rise from the dead either. Right? Just because it's 2,000 years ago doesn't mean they were stupid. Right? We, may, we may think we're terrifically scientifically advanced, and of course, compared to 2,000 years ago, we are. We've, we've made a lot more progress in what we know. What we, but even back then, they knew that dead people really were dead. Right? And they didn't just spring back to life again. They were not expecting anybody, they were not expecting Jesus to rise 
from the dead. So they're not making this up because they want it to be true. And if they were making this stuff up, they really wouldn't have done it in the way they did. Right? For example, in the first century Judea, the testimony of women was legally inadmissible. So why on earth would they have a bunch of women being the first people to testify to Jesus' resurrection? Okay? They simply wouldn't, if they're making this up, it just wouldn't have looked like, the stories wouldn't look like they do. But for me, the real clincher with the empty tomb is that this idea of the empty tomb would be so, so easy to disprove if it wasn't true. All the authorities have to do is produce a body or, or say, you know, come, come and have a look for yourself. You know, these deluded fools over here are saying that this guy, Jesus, has risen from the dead, that he's no longer there, that the tomb is empty. Just come and see for yourself. Clearly it's not. Clearly there is a body there. They could have done that, but that never, ever happened. And so we have 17 first century documents claiming the resurrection of Jesus, claiming the tomb was empty. We have zero evidence, zero historical documents saying, well, that was the claim, but it was, it was basically disproved. So you can ignore what people were claiming. So the empty tomb... The fact that Jesus' tomb was empty is as close to historical fact as we can get. And again, most historians would agree with that. Whether they have a philosophical objection to the idea of resurrection or not, they would say, yeah, the tomb was empty. Jesus' tomb was empty. So that's the first thing that Paul presents in his argument. Then the second thing he comes to is the hundreds of eyewitnesses. So in verses 5 to 8, he says this. He says, Jesus appeared to Peter... Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He's referring to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus there. So Paul lists all these eyewitnesses, people who would testify 100% to having seen Jesus alive after his death. And on one occasion, more than 500 at the same time. In other words, this is not a hallucination brought by trauma or grief or whatever. 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. So this letter, as I said before, was written about 20 years after the resurrection. And Paul makes a point of saying most of the eyewitnesses are still alive. Some have died, but most are still alive. Why does he say that? Well, because he's saying, if you're hearing this letter read out to you, or you're reading it at the time it was written, you can go and check this out for yourself. He's saying, you can go and talk to these people, these eyewitnesses, and just hear their story for yourself. You know, there's an open invitation here to go and speak to literally hundreds of eyewitnesses of the resurrection, people who saw the risen Jesus, and would all testify to the same thing. Now, Paul simply could not have written something like that. Or for it to have lasted as it has, if it wasn't true. Because again, just so easy to discredit. So easy to, to, to say, you're talking nonsense, Paul. You know, anyone who is concerned about the claims that are being made about Jesus in this letter or in any other writings could just say, well, I'm going to go and see for myself. I'm going to go and look for these eyewitnesses that Paul talks about and then say, well, I can't find any. You say there are hundreds, I can't find any. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. You're making this up, mate. That never happened again never happened. In fact, quite the opposite happened. So Luke, who was a doctor and a historian, he wrote the Gospel of Luke in the Bible that we have here in the Bible. Now, how did he find out his information about Jesus? Well, he went and talked to the eyewitnesses. That's what he did. He was a historian. That's how he worked. That's how he did his research. He talked to the eyewitnesses. So we have the reality of the empty tomb, that Jesus' body was not there where it was put. 
Uh, we have the hundreds of eyewitnesses. And then the third part of Paul's argument is the, tr- the transformed lives of Jesus' followers. So verse 9 and 10, Paul says this, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was, was not without effect. If you ever want to see a transformed life, this guy is it. Because he went from being someone who hated Christians. His mission in life was to persecute the church, to stamp it out, to stop it ever getting off the ground. He imprisoned and he killed many followers of Jesus. He went from being that to someone whose life's mission was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and he planted churches all over the world. He was totally, totally changed by meeting Jesus, as were all the other followers of Jesus that we read about in the Bible, as are lives today. So we heard stories of hope at the beginning of the meeting, if you were here at the beginning of the meeting, but we could point to hundreds of stories just in this church, just in this little part of High Wycombe, of, of stories of transformation and, and some real dramatic transformed lives and millions across the world whose lives have been transformed by Jesus and are still being transformed today. But even just the, the, the ones we read about in the Bible, these followers of Jesus, these early disciples, the first apostles, their lives were completely transformed because they went around preaching the gospel, preaching the resurrection of Jesus at a huge cost to themselves because they were persecuted, they were put in prison, they were beaten and flogged and ultimately most of them were killed in pretty horrific ways they were killed now there there was they were killed because they were preaching about jesus and refused to back down and there was a, a, a a a theory there were lots of theories put forward to try to explain the empty tomb and there was one of them was oh well the disciples stole the body that's why the tomb is empty because the disciples they stole the body and they hid it And you think, yeah, okay, I can see why you might think that, until you realize that these people are suffering and dying. Would you be willing to suffer and die a horrific death as something that you knew for a fact was a hoax? If you've been part of it, I was part of hiding the body, but I'm still going to go to my death upside down on a cross. Of course you're not going to do that. At some point, at least one of them is going to say, actually, I need to back down here because I kind of want to keep my life. But they didn't do that fact is the lives of Jesus' followers were transformed and they utterly believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and their lives, people's lives are still being transformed today. So these three things, the reality of the empty tomb, the hundreds of eyewitnesses, the radically transformed lives, together they make a really powerful historical case that the resurrection of Jesus happened. We just can't get away from it. A German theologian called Wolfhart Pannenberg said the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and the hundreds of eyewitnesses really existed. He's saying, historically speaking, thinking as a historian, you simply can't say that those things didn't happen, not if you've got any integrity. You, ju- you can't say because it's the logical historical conclusion from the evidence that we have. Otherwise, he says, the church would never have got off the ground. It would have died a death. It would never have grown as it did. So the historical evidence for this is, is overwhelming. Regardless of your philosophical position on whether or not resurrection can happen, the only plausible explanation we have for the evidence is the one that we have here in the Bible, which is that Jesus Christ was indeed raised from the dead. No other explanation, and lots have been put forward, no other explanation has been proved credible or has ever been put forward. 
So Jesus was raised from the dead. You just got to accept it as fact. It's a historical fact. Follow-up question then is, well, so what? So what? Okay, sometimes extraordinary things happen. Okay, maybe if I'm willing to accept, okay, this weird thing happened and it's just one of those anomalies that happens because people generally don't rise from the dead. If the resurrection happened, so what? What difference does that make to me in 21st century Britain? Again, it's a good question. So what I want to do is just, again, outline three key ways, and, and there are loads more. There are loads we could mention, but three key ways that the resurrection of Jesus really does make a difference to your life if you let it. And we all have the choice. But his resurrection really does make a difference if you let it. So first thing, first reason that the resurrection makes a difference even today, even in 21st century Britain, is that it means that he is true. It means that everything Jesus claimed is true. It validates everything he claimed, everything he said, everything he did. Because if somebody says they're going to die and then be raised to life three days later, and that's what happens... I think that puts a pretty high degree of credibility on that person. I think that's somebody you trust. That's somebody you listen to. And it kind of validates everything else that that person claims. So it, it means, so what did Jesus claim? What did Jesus do? Well, it means this. It means that if the resurrection happened and therefore we can trust in what Jesus said, it means that the creator God, he really did take it upon himself to enter into his own creation, to enter into human history. That's what we celebrate every Christmas God coming as a baby, God coming as man, one of his creatures. It means he did come to redeem and rescue the world, and he came to forgive your sins and and my sins at a huge cost to himself. It means he really did come to make a way for us to get back to God, to come back to God, back to the creator, which is the relationship that we were created for in the first place. That's why everyone has a, a feels that you have like this missing piece in your life, because we were designed for this relationship which we're not born with. So he came to make that way back to God, to, 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 to get back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. It means he really did come and demonstrate his love in the most extraordinary of ways and provide a solution to all the world's problems, of which we know there are many, and I think we all know we don't actually have the solutions to those problems. That is really good news. It's really good news for all who will receive that forgiveness that he offers for all who will take that way back to God that he offers. We've got to take it, but he offers it. This is really good news for you if you put your trust and your faith in Jesus. Now, of course, something we often hear in our day is we hear people talking about things like, they'll say something like, well, th- th- this is, that's my truth. Have you ever heard people talk about my truth and that's your truth, as if truth is a subjective thing? It's nonsense <laughs> if you think about it. Your truth, my truth. And we live in an age where people can essentially make up whatever they want and insist that you affirm it as true, uh, even though it's plainly not true. That's, That's the age we live in. No wonder people are confused. No wonder people are searching. That's the age of kind of confusion that we live in. But, you know, that thing, oh, this is your truth. It's your truth. Great for you if believing in Jesus works for you. If that makes you happy, fantastic. Okay. You believe in Jesus, John, if it fulfills you, but don't insist that other people believe in him because that's offensive. Don't, don't insist. Don't, don't preach that he's the only way. Don't, don't, don't suggest that I might be wrong in my views. That's offensive. You know, If it fulfills you, great, but it might not fulfill them. It might not be right for them. But to take the example of Paul again, you know, Paul didn't believe in Jesus because he thought it would fulfill him. 
or because it fitted with his life. As I said, Paul didn't want to believe in Jesus. He had no interest in believing in Jesus. He hated Jesus. He was persecuting the church. He hated Jesus' followers. He couldn't see anything remotely fulfilling about following Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus, for Paul, was a threat to everything he held dear. His, his most dearly held beliefs, his reputation, his worldview, his, his control over his own life. Paul didn't want to believe in Jesus at all until he saw him, until he met him for himself. And he realized it was all true. And that would be the experience of many people here. The encounter with Jesus, they actually meeting him and realizing, oh, oh, this is actually true. I didn't believe in Jesus because I thought it would fulfill me or because it fitted with my life or the kind of person I am. I was 17 when I became a Christian. And um, no, I didn't believe in him because I thought it would fulfill me. I had plans for my life. You know, I had plans of what I was going to do with my soon-to-be-gained independence as a 17, nearly 18-year-old. I had plans and probably similar plans and thoughts to what many 17-year-old boys would have about the kinds of things they're going to get up to once I have this freedom and independence, which was approaching very quickly. I had plans for my life. And Jesus kind of got in the way of those plans. I mean, it, really, Jesus ruined my life. <laughs> he did. But I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad he did because he brought me freedom and he brought me meaning. He brought me purpose in my life. You know, I'm so glad that he is who he is. That he doesn't bow to my will, I bow to his. I'm so glad he is not a God who is made in my image. A, a belief system that revolves around my needs and where I'm at the center and he's there to serve me. No, no, no. It's the other way around. I'm so glad he doesn't revolve around my desires and needs because my desires and needs are not always helpful or good. I know that I am fundamentally flawed. You know, I think we all know that, that I am fundamentally flawed. <laughs> I think we all know that there's something amiss with us. I need him. I need somebody in my life who's going to correct me and contradict me, and he does often. Very, very often. But don't think about Jesus in terms of whether or not he's going to fulfill you or whether, or whether he fits with your life. He won't. He won't fit with your life. Praise God. He will not fit with your life. But let the facts of the resurrection speak for themselves and believe in him because it's true. It's that simple. Believe in him because it's true. W.H. Auden was someone who went back to Christianity after many years of being an atheist. And he said this, he said, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams and because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. I'm so grateful that Jesus is who he is and that my life revolves around him. His life doesn't revolve around me. This is not a savior or a means of salvation that anybody would have made up, but this is who Jesus is. It's the only kind of Jesus and this is the only God who can save you. Is the only God who can change you and actually ultimately will fulfill you precisely because he is not a product of your desires and your needs. But he can bring challenge to you. Believe in him, not because you think it's going to fit with your life. It will not. Believe in him because he's true. Second thing, why does the resurrection matter? He gives you freedom. He brings freedom from your past, freedom from your sin. Let me read verse 17 again. I already read it out. But I'll just read it again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. 
If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Again, consider Paul. How does Paul get past his past? Because he has, he has imprisoned and killed people for being Christians. Now he's in the church, surrounded by friends and family of people he has killed. How does that work? How on earth does that work? How does Paul live with himself? Well, Paul says it's because of the resurrection, that he is no longer in his sins. He's received forgiveness. You know, he says, if, if, if Christ has not been raised, you're, you're still in your sins. Flip it on its head. Therefore, if Christ has been raised, you are no longer in your sins. And Paul claims that forgiveness for himself. This is the scandalous thing about the gospel that many people struggle with. Many people have a, have a real problem with this. The scandalous, outrageous truth of the gospel is that you can be the worst of sinners, the very worst of sinners, and yet receive forgiveness from God. You can be the worst of sinners and receive the grace of God. You can be the very worst, the, the, the most unimaginably bad sinner, and still be infinitely loved. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, you may not be in Paul's league in terms of sin, because we tend to put these things in a hierarchy, don't we? You know, some sins are worse than others. We do that because we want to feel good about ourselves, because we can at least say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. So you might not be in Paul's league in terms of sin. You may never have killed anybody, and you may not, never have had anyone flogged. Okay? I hope you haven't. But you might even consider yourself a pretty nice person, a moral person, a decent person, and you might well be. You might be a really nice, a really nice person. But nobody lives up to what they think they should be. Nobody, if you're really honest with yourself. I think deep down, as I said before, we're all aware there's something slightly amiss. There's something wrong. I mean, for example, we all have thoughts that go through our heads at times that if, if those thoughts were to be projected up there on that screen in front of everybody, we would be horrified. It would be shameful because we know the thoughts. We know how dark some of those thoughts are, how depraved some of those thoughts are. We all have those thoughts at times. Or I know that I've done things in the past which have hurt people, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. Why? Why is that? Why do I have the propensity to do that? I don't want to hurt people. So what is that about? I can't even live up to the standards I've set for myself, let alone the standards of holiness and purity that God sets. I mean, again, this is part of my own story of salvation. That when I, like I said before, when I was 17, encountering Jesus... And it, part of that encounter was the fact that in the eyes of the world, I would, I, I, I'm guessing I would have been seen as a relatively decent bloke. I'm guessing. Nobody told me I wasn't. So, you know, I wasn't, but I wasn't rebellious. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't, you know, I was just getting on with life. I was kind of at school, doing well at school and looking forward to the next part of life, all that kind of thing. So I would, I would have been seen by people as, yeah, he's, he's all right. You know, nobody would have looked at me and thought, oh, he's a sinner. He's a terrible sinner, you know. But in that moment of encountering Jesus, really powerful moment, it was like I saw myself as I really was. And I saw the darkness of sin in my heart. My years of rejecting God, turning my back on him, saying, I don't need you, stuff I've done, stuff I've thought. I could see how, what an impact that had on my life, how dark it was. Even in someone who was considered a relatively decent, moral, nice guy, the darkness of sin that was there. And then at the same time, I encountered the most extraordinary love. And every time, 
every time it gets me. Just the most extraordinary love and forgiveness. And I'm like, how could you love something like this? How could you love someone like this? And it's an encounter which had changed my life forever. It's why I'm standing here. It's why I'm so passionate about this. Because it's changed my life forever. The fact is, and the Bible's very clear about this, we all fall short of God's standard. Every single one of us, we all fall short of God's standard. We're all in debt to God. We're all in debt because of our sin, and it's a debt that we're completely incapable of paying. We cannot pay this debt ourselves, so we're stuck. But in the resurrection, with the cross and the resurrection, it was like God stamped, paid in full across human history. It's like he stamped that across your life. If you believe that he died and rose for you and you put your trust in him for that and you give your life to him, he has stamped, paid in full across your life. Jesus died for the sin of the world. He died to pay that debt. Now, how do we know it? How do we know he paid it in full? Well, think of this illustration. If you do something really wrong, you go to prison. And then once you've served your term, the prison door opens and you come out because you've served your term. You've paid your debt. Your your debt to society has been paid in full. You are now free to go and live your life. Jesus never did anything wrong himself. He was the only perfect and sinless man who ever lived. He lived the perfect human life. But on the cross, he, it's like he exchanged his perfection for our gross imperfection. He took upon himself the weight of all the sin of the world. He took upon himself on that cross the penalty, the punishment for all the sin of the world. It tells us that in the Bible that he who knew no sin became sin. So this most perfect, righteous being in the universe became abhorrent and grotesque and twisted and marred by our sin. Because of our sin, he willingly, and he did do this willingly, he suffered in horrific ways and died a criminal's death and he was buried in a tomb. How do we know that that was worth it? How do we know his sacrifice, uh, his death was enough, that it was effective in paying that debt? Well, we know because the stone was rolled away, because the door opened and Jesus came out of prison. He came out of the tomb. He came out of death. The debt is paid in full. Praise God. Amen. The debt is paid in full. Make no mistake about it. And if Christ has been raised and you've put your faith in him, you put your trust in him, then you receive, just like I've experienced, like many people here have experienced, like Paul himself experienced, you receive the gift of forgiveness he offers. And it is wonderful. It's indescribably wonderful. It means you are no longer in your sins, as Paul says here. You are no longer in your sins. You are now in him. You are in Christ. I don't know how this works, but somehow he has taken your unrighteous record, your unrighteous past, and he gives you his righteous record, his righteousness, his his righteous life, almost as if you had lived it yourself. And so the effect of that is that when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he chooses to no longer see your past. He chooses to no longer see your sin. Instead, he sees the beauty, purity, holiness, and righteousness of Christ on you on you and on me. He gives you freedom. This is why the resurrection matters. He gives you freedom from your past, no matter what you've done. He gives you freedom in the now. He gives you meaning and hope and purpose in your life. Now, of course, that does mean you can't just live the life, your life the way you want anymore. You know, it's not a case of I'm going to invite Jesus into my life so he bends to my will. Other way around. 
I submit myself to him. I'm going to live my life his way. You can't just live your life any, the way you want anymore. He will ruin your life as you know it, but he leads you into something so much better because he brings you freedom. He brings you freedom from yourself, freedom from your sin, freedom from your past, freedom from what other people think of me, freedom from having to act in a certain way to fit in because you already do fit in with him. The verdict is in. You don't have to perform for any verdict. He's given it to you. You are righteous. You are accepted. You are holy. You have eternity with him. He gives you freedom from everything and his forgiveness is ongoing. I rely on his forgiveness every day of my life because I keep messing up. I keep sinning and he forgives me again and again and again. See, Jesus doesn't just wipe the slate clean and then start totting up again. He chucks the whole slate away. Praise God. Praise God. So the resurrection means it validates everything Jesus said and did. It means he's true. It means he gives you freedom. And then the third thing that I'll finish with is that death has been defeated. We need have no fear of death. Verses 30 to 32, Paul says, as for us, referring to him and the other apostles, he's, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. And he goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So he's saying, look, if there's no resurrection, there's no reason to live an unselfish life. Just eat, drink, be merry, go for it. Satisfy all your desires whenever you want, however you want, with whoever you want, at the cost of whoever you want, because who cares? Why would anyone care? Because if death is the end, you've only got a limited time and it might be tomorrow. We don't know. So you might as well get what you can, take what you can, and live a selfish life if that's the case. But Paul's talking about something very, very different. He talks about himself facing death every day because of preaching the gospel of Christ. And he's saying I, I, he, he will pursue this gospel and he will lead others to Jesus, even if it means facing death, which ultimately he did. Why would he do that? Why would he not say, this is too hard, I'm just going to live my life quietly over here in the knowledge that I have a relationship with Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because he doesn't fear death. Paul has no fear of death. And there is no fear of death for Christians if Jesus has risen because death has been defeated. Jesus has overcome it. And there is a glorious and perfect future, eternity with God that awaits on the other side. And therefore, because I can live in that knowledge that actually, you know what? Life might be tough right now, but my eternity is looking great. It means I have the freedom to live in the right way, to do what is right in my life, even if it doesn't mean following my selfish desires, even if it means denying myself at times, even if it means facing discomfort, danger, and even death. And there are many Christians in the world today who are facing that very real possibility because of the persecution that occurs in some parts of the world against Christians. Christians are being killed for their faith and not backing down. You take a nation like China where there's been years of horrendous persecution. You know, people being put in prison, being beaten, being tortured and even killed. And yet in that nation, Christianity has exploded. It has grown exponentially. Well, what is that about? How do you explain that? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that Christians who have a relationship with Jesus Christ have a hope in their lives that not even suffering or even death can touch. And I'm not trying to minimize death. Because we all know death is grievous. God finds death grievous. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. 
And particularly if you've lost somebody who is close to you, death is grievous. We, we grieve. It's, it's bitter. It's, it's, it hurts when people, when people die. But if you're a Christian, you don't need to fear death. You don't need to be afraid. I, I heard the story of a father taking his kids to the funeral of his wife, of their mum, and trying to figure out on the way how to talk to his kids about this. And on the way, they pass a truck, and so the truck goes by, and the shadow of the truck goes by. And he said to his son, he said, you see that truck, and, and you see the shadow of the truck. Would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And the son, of course, says, well, by the shadow. And he says, he said, what I want you to know, what I want you to understand is that the truck of death hit Jesus so that mummy only has to pass through the shadow. And that's the difference this makes. That's the difference the resurrection makes. It changes everything. Everything. Death is not the end. If you're in Christ, you don't have to be afraid of death. And if you're not afraid of death, you don't have to be afraid of anything. That's life-changing right now. In a world in which I would say over the last three years, so many lives have been defined by fear. And particularly fear of death. This is huge in our world. At the moment, people have been traumatized and act in certain ways because of a fear of death. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear anything. That changes your life. So ask the band to come back up if they're, if they're around. Not quite finished. <laughs> Nearly. Hope breaks out. That's what we've called it today. Hope breaks out. It breaks out because of Easter. Hope breaks out because Jesus broke out of the tomb. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Christian faith is worthless. It's futile. We're all wasting our time. Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, well, we are to be pitied more than all men. But in the very next verse, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is risen. Christ is risen. He is alive. And in our, in our world of confusion that I've talked about, this world of disorientation and mixed messages and incoherence, actually there's still this one clarion call of Christ saying, no, I am the way, follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the only way to the Father. Follow me. Don't be confused by what the world is telling you. Follow me. This is the most important question that you will ever face. Your answer defines the rest of your life and eternity. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Grapple with the evidence. Grapple with the fact that Jesus still changes lives today. The evidence is there because it's true. Because it's true. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? You bet he did. You bet he did. And it changes everything for you if you let it. And that's the question I want to leave you with is will you let it? Will you let it? Do you trust Jesus enough to receive his forgiveness and let him take charge of your life. Richard.